Meow. Beware, the cat people are loose. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We're so happy to have you back with us again for some more incredible stories. And if you are new to our show, welcome. We're happy to have you here. There's always room for one more. And uh, we hope that you like our show so much that you are going to hit that subscribe button so that every Friday you'll be treated to a fantastic new story that can only be brought to you by us, Richard and Gary. So that being said, let's go ahead and move on into today's story. Oh, and uh, tonight we have a great one for all of you folks who um, I can never say enough how much I, I and Gary also personally appreciate you being with us. So you giving some of your valuable time to us so that we can share some stories with you that we hope uh, are certainly entertaining and uh, maybe sometimes even educational. Yeah. So uh, maybe educational. Yeah. Let's let's not stretch that too far. I mean, we got maybe a handful. Well, I tell you what. To tonight, uh, we're going to delve into film history. Gary. Oh, that's you know that's my favorite kind of history. Oh, yeah. Movie history, and we're going to be talking about uh, the 1942 American horror film called Cat People. Mm, that's a good movie. And uh, you and I had a conversation a little uh, earlier today in which we mentioned that, wow, 1942 was a pivotal time for the United States of America. A lot of transition going on there. Yeah, it was December 7th, 1941 that uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and we entered into World War II. Well, uh, less than a month later, it was New Year's 1942. And this is the year, of course, that cat people uh, was made and it was a time when the united states had to gear up uh, get people in uniform uh, get them trained yeah uh, manufacture the equipment of war and uh, get over there and so uh, cat people was being filmed right at this time uh, which was a turbulent time in american history yeah it was it was a time where people definitely needed some escapism because of all of the craziness going on around the world. Yes, yes. And then I'm not sure when they instituted, um, you know, the uh, uh, ration books, but um, it might have been about that time, and Americans had never uh, experienced something like that before. But anyways, you're right. Um, the movies have always offered an escape to people around the world, especially in difficult times. Absolutely. Now, this film was directed by a person who was born in France by the name of Jacques Tournier, and he produced it for RKO. I love the RKO. Oh, I know. Uh, You're RKO. a big RKO oh, fan. Those old studio pictures from the 30s and 40s. And um, it was uh, produced for RKO by a fellow by the name of Val Newton. That was one of his many aliases. Val Newton. Yes, yes. That was not his real name. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, both of these gentlemen along with some of the main stars of the movie um, 
at in the second half of the podcast tonight. So you're going to meet them shortly. Ooh, I can't wait. Now, this film tells the story of uh, Irina Dubrovna. She was a, a, a newly married Serbian fashion illustrator obsessed with the idea that she is descended from an ancient tribe of cat people who metamorphose into panthers when aroused. And shortly, Gary, I'm going to, since you and I watched this movie recently together, I'm going to ask you to kind of uh, summarize the plot in just a moment or two. Um, that film stars Simone Simon as Arena, and it features Kent Smith, Tom Conway, and Jane Randolph in supporting roles. We're going to be talking about all of those folks except Jane Randolph. Um, we'll be talking about the others uh, uh, in just a moment. The uh, production began in 1942. Val Luton was placed in charge of developing RKO's low-budget horror film. So guess what? This was RKO's first attempt at a horror movie. Oh. Uh-huh. And, you know, Universal was kind of the king of the horror movie uh, department. Back. They definitely had a leg up. Yeah. But RKO wanted to uh, get involved and... All, uh, all he had to go on was a title. An RKO executive said, hey, cat people, that sounds like a nice title for a film. Go ahead and develop it. <laughs> and that's all he had. Let's, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, it was, uh, the film was shot at RKO Studios, and they actually, you know, um, RKO was a low-budget studio, so they pinched pennies, and they reused some of the sets from previous films, such as uh, Orson Welles' The Magnificent Amberson, Ambersons. Yeah, The Staircase yeah. and a couple other things in there. Yeah, The Staircase, um, as, as well as a couple other things, right. Now, uh, during the editing, uh, the uh, film editor by the name of Mark Robson, he developed a technique that was later called the Luton Bus, named after Val Luton, the producer. Yeah. The Luton Bus, um, and it uh, involves a bus scene, and I think maybe you'll be talking about that shortly, uh, which is a called a jump scare, a jump scare, and Luton used that in, in the subsequent films after Cat People. Mm -hmm. It's a technique that's used very well. It's it's kind of like the, that red heron, you know, uh, you're expecting one thing, but you're given another, and ah. so... Expecting that's, one thing and giving another—that's yes, a great. Yes. Uh, that's a great definition of red herrings and uh, uh, herrings. Red herring. I red guess. herrings. Yeah. Um, Cat People premiered at the Rialto Theater in Manhattan, New York City, um, December fifth, nineteen forty-two. So we're looking at about one year after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Correct. And at that point, uh, the United States uh, was starting to get up and running. Um, in a serious way in World War II. Uh, the film was uh, followed by a sequel called The Curse of the Cat People. Uh, that was uh, in uh, 1944, two years after Cat People. Uh -huh. And then there was another movie that you're familiar with. Uh, it was a remake in 1982. Yes, also called Cat People. Cat People, yes. So before I uh, introduce you to some of the key folks in the Cat People production, yes. uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the movie is all about? So a um, very taboo movie for the time um, because uh, it involves uh, this woman, this very attractive woman, who uh, falls in love uh, with this uh, gentleman. And... Um, it leads to them getting, you know, 
engaged and married, but um, she can never be with him, not in any kind of physical, emotional uh, type of way because she is afraid that if she does and her uh, emotions become, you know, aroused, that uh, she will turn into a giant panther and she will eat her um, significant other. And so uh, it can be seen as uh, she's the, the husband, her husband, you know, when everything starts going on, first he's very understanding. Oh, okay. Uh, we won't have that honeymoon, uh, honeymoon night. Um, and, you know, she's kind of comes off as being a little bit uh, frigid um, all the time though. Uh, her, her wanting to be passionate with her, her uh, spouse and, um, but just afraid of what will happen. But consequently, what ends up happening is that he falls for another. And so now jealousy uh, arises. And um, this cat creature manifests itself through her jealousy. And she uh, soon makes the other woman a target of her anger. And things progress from there. But the, the great thing about this movie is that you never see um, the main character, who's uh, the creature, uh, turn into a cat. Um, she is only seen in shadow and with sound when it comes to those type of things. The photography is really great, and the sound design is really great for a movie of its time. And it really brings across uh, fear in ways that... Uh, would be different than if you actually saw a visual effect. And so it's it's very unique in that respect. And um, that's kind of the premise of, of the story. Um, and the, But it's it's also that she's running away from something. She, she knows deep down inside that there's something different about her. And then when certain strangers start to show up and kind of remind her of where she came from and who she is, that adds a little bit more complexity to the story. Mm, so without giving away the ending, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that jump scare with the bus? Well, you really have to talk about um, how it's shot and the buildup and the editing. Um, the scene that you're referring to is uh, a scene where... The uh, do we have the names of the characters? Because I'm trying to think right uh, off the top of my head. I don't have 42. the uh, characters offhand, but I've got uh, the the main stars. But we could talk about um, the uh, Catwoman. We can talk about uh, the Doctor. Uh, All right, let's see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull up the IMDb list real quick. Hang on. So basically, um, Simone, the the actress Simone, who's playing the uh, the main uh, femme fatale. Uh, she's stalking uh, the woman that her husband is uh, now um, developing feelings for. And so it's happening outside. You have this um, open area where there's a walkway, a road, and a bridge. And um, it looks very gothic. It looks very creepy. And uh, you see the two women walking. Um, uh, Simone is several steps behind the woman that she's uh, following. 
And at first, the woman is very confident. She's walking, you know, with a little bit of, uh, you know, you know, feeling of security. And then she gets a feeling that there could be somebody behind her or someone following her. And so her audience is starting to develop a sense of dread. Right. So her her footsteps start to pick up. And what you have is this um, cutting that progressively gets a little bit faster. And you see both women are picking up pace. And um, the person who's being stalked goes from a confident uh, stride to a very panicked, Mm -hmm. um, very rushed pace. And when she gets to the bus stop uh, where she's supposed to be, she's looking over her shoulder and there's nobody there. But there's these sounds that start to build up. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a bus that comes out of nowhere. And it's very jarring and it gives you (laughs) a little jump in your seat because you're not expecting it. You're waiting for something to pounce on her. You're not expecting the bus to be there. And that was the first jump scare in the scary movies developed by Val Luton. I would say it's one of them. I wouldn't say it's the first. There's there's been many different types Mm -hmm. of jump scares, but that's just one unique one. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's great is after that, you hear rustling uh, in the trees behind her, and you can't see what's in the trees or even see the trees, but you hear the sounds. And so you know that there's something there. And then it's followed up later by... You know, this guy who has these sheep and two or three of the sheep have been slaughtered. And he's following the tracks and he's confused because the footsteps go from being paw prints from a large cat to foot uh, footsteps uh, or footprints from a high heel shoe. Ooh. And you see this transition happen what from that. What a great way to so, show a transition. Right, so you don't need to see but you understand, and it's all done through, again, um, clues, sounds, shadows, and... Great editing. Yeah, really, really effective editing. So you can you can build up anything with that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of movies now that do that and do it very effectively. It's, mm-hmm. it's so simple. Well, let's go ahead then and meet some of the people who made all of this happen, Gary. I told you earlier that uh, Val Luton, that was just one of his many aliases in life. Uh, He was born in Russia in 1904, and his name was Vladimir Leventon. Vladimir Leventon. Leventon. So Vladimir Leventon was actually Val Luton's real name. But as uh, so many uh, foreign folks who ended up in Hollywood did, uh, he tried to anglicize his name. And he became uh-huh. Val Luton. Now, uh, in 1906, when he was two years old, he, he and his mother and sister moved to Berlin, Germany. Okay. And then uh, to the United States in 1909. And here in the United States, he wrote for newspapers and magazines and novels and even did a little pornography, Gary. So I think I can start to figure out why he had to use so many pseudonyms and different names yeah. well you know back then uh some people and, and they were really uh referred to more as like stag films mm-hmm. uh a lot of directors who couldn't get jobs found it easiest to get jobs doing those types of movies because they paid and it was easy work to get and a lot of people you know, only held on to doing that kind of stuff until something happened where they could actually make studio movies. 
Yeah, uh, Val uh, Luton, did you know that he got fired from his job as a reporter for the Darien Stamford Review? I had no idea. Uh Uh-huh. The editors discovered that one of his stories that he wrote about a truckload of kosher chickens dying in a New York uh, heat wave was a total fabrication. Oh, that's not ethical <laughs> at all. Yeah, there were no uh, kosher chickens dying in a New York heat wave. <laughs> well, you know, I hate to say it, but um, that's like people who um, tend to uh, run out of ideas for their book reports in school and manufacture something that uh, sounds good until the teacher finds out that uh, you didn't do your work. So um, it sounds like our friend was struggling with stories and... um, Oh, yeah, lack thereof. Yeah, lack thereof, and then got a little creative and got caught. Mm -hmm. Ugh, not good. Well, he graduated from overheated kosher chickens to uh, Hollywood. 1933, he got a job with David O. Selznick. We know uh, all about David O. Selznick of Selznick International Pictures. Of course. Um, The man who brought us... Gone with the wind, among other things, many other things. So anyways, uh, he spent many years as a story editor there and kind of a jack of all trades. And then in 1942, RKO hired him to head their new horror unit. And he made a lot of uh, very famous and well-respected B-movies. He was able to do them at very low cost and very high profit. So they loved his uh, B-movies over at RKO. And, of course, the first one he ever did was Cat People in 1942. Oh, yeah. He was one of the few B movie directors who was able to break into the A movies, the big time. But by that time, he had some serious health problems, and and, uh, there were a number of other factors. And so he only made three A-list movies before he died uh, in 1951. And so he was in his 40s. Gary, when he passed away, he was young. Oh, that's too young. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. When he was working with uh, David O. Selznick, yeah. I didn't know this, but he wrote several scenes for Gone with the Wind. Really? Yes, he did. Val Luton wrote several scenes for Gone with the Wind, the director of Cat People, the movie we're talking about today. Uh, In 1939, he wrote several scenes. One of them was the Atlanta Depot sequence. Do you remember that one from the movie? I think so. All the wounded soldiers outside the Atlanta uh, Depot, train depot. Then, just as a joke, uh, you know, this is the guy that writes about overheated kosher chicken. So (laughs) his sense of humor uh, was intact. Uh, So just as a joke on David O. Selznick, he included an outrageously expensive scene that required an elaborate elevator shot of hundreds of wounded soldiers. Guess what, Gary? David O. Selznick read it, loved it, put it in the film. Yeah, that, I know that scene. That's where it starts out with Scarlett O'Hara, and she's on the ground, and then and she's, uh, or no, she's walking. I think she's walking. And then the camera pulls back, and you see... Hundreds and hundreds of um, soldiers who are either dead, dying, or severely injured uh, in the scene. And it's Mm -hmm. a very, um, 
how do I want to put it? It's powerful. Mean, it's powerful. It's a powerful scene, yeah, but it's also um I struggling with my words today. Um I don't want to use the word epic uh, shot, but it's um, it's one of them you remember. It's a cinema it's it's a truly cinematic moment. Moment. And uh, and so when you want folks when uh, when you watch Gone with the Wind the next time and you see these scenes, remember they're there thanks to the guy who directed Cat People or not directed uh, produced Cat People, Val Luton, the producer of Cat People. Well, um, we're going to finish up talking about uh, Val. He was uh, assigned titles, as I mentioned at RKO, but. He had to come up with the stories himself, and as we know from his early newspaper career, once again referring to the co- dead kosher chickens, yes. he had no trouble coming up with stories. Um, and he hired writers who offered contributions, but he always wrote the final shooting scripts himself, Gary. Oh, really? He may not have been credited. But he wrote the final But he scripts. wrote them, yeah. So he was credited as producer, and I don't think very much, uh, He, I don't think he uh, ever got... Uh, writing credits, but he did. He wrote yeah. the final shooting scripts uh, himself. And uh, his two most famous films turned out to be the one we're talking about uh, this evening, Cat People. Cat People. And then The Curse of the Cat People two years later. Now, interestingly enough, he had a morbid fear of cats. Yes, he did. He came up with the idea for Curse of the Cat People when he was swimming in a lake one night he saw some cats sitting on the shore staring at him. He panicked, and he almost drowned. Really? Yeah. So although he spent many years in the business and achieved a certain level of success, as far as Val Luton goes, uh, Gary, there's no known motion picture footage of him, and we don't have any recordings of his voice. We don't know what he sounded like. Interesting. Great producer, but we don't know that much about him. Cause, oh, yeah, we died so young, in his, about 46, I believe, or so. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, he hated Boris Karloff, one of the big uh, horror. Um, oh, what stars happened between the two of them that he hated him so much? Well, um, he referred to Boris Karloff as my worst nightmare, and he actually refused to work with Boris Karloff until he was forced to by the studio. And then he discovered that Karloff hated the horror movies he had been in and loved the terror films that Luton was doing. So oh. Karloff said, yeah, I hated the horror movies I was in, but I, I like yours. I like your terror films. So the two hit it off, and they, they actually made several pictures together. Body Snatcher, I don't know if you've ever watched that. Oh, I love Body the Body Snatcher. Snatchers. Okay, that's a Val Luton picture with Boris Karloff. And Isle of the Dead, that's another one. You familiar with that one? I am. And Bedlam. So Boris Karloff, Val Luton teamed together, even though um, they started off uh, as uh, pretty distant strangers. Let's talk a little bit about the cast of Cat People, Gary. The bad guy was played by Tim Conway. Now, Tim Conway went on to play the Falcon, um, and he ended up in three of Val Luton's horror classics. But he also did comedies, he did musicals, he did two Tarzan films, Gary, and and even some science fiction films. Okay, and and Tim Conway was who in the movie? Uh, he was the doctor, the um, the bad guy. He was the villain. Okay. Uh, yeah, the psychiatrist. Um, that's uh, that was Tom Conway. Now, 
Oh, Tom Conway. You said Tim Conway. Oh, uh, Tim? No, 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 no. Tom. Tom, Tom. Conway. Yeah, because yeah, Tim Conway is a totally different actor. Right. No, this is Tom, Tom Conway. Uh, Tom Conway. Yeah. And he's probably best remembered, if he's remembered at all, <laughs> as George Sanders' brother. Now, George Sanders had a little uh, bigger reputation than he did in Hollywood. Now, guess what? Tom Conway and his brother George Sanders... Yes. They were Russian also, just like the producer, Val Luton. How about that? Yeah, so we had several Russians, or two Russians, connected with uh, cat people. Um, he was born into a wealthy family in the pre-Bolshevik uh, Revolution era, Russia, and uh, he might have followed his father as a rope manufacturer and inherited several estates, but the family was forced to flee to England. The brothers Sanders... Uh, you know, if that hadn't happened, they may never have added their names to the Hollywood saga. Wow. But the Russian Revolution did come, and Tom, who was 13 at the time, and George, George Sanders, age 11, and their sister Margaret, who was five years old, together with their parents, fled to England, leaving most of their wealth in the hands of the Bolsheviks. Wow. Yeah. And so you would never know it. He has no accent, of course, uh, perfect of English. Of course not. He played the Falcon, remember. And and he's suave and he's sort of um, you know uh, an all American type, but no, no, no. So two Russians in the film, and I might also add that there's two folks from France: uh, the director Jacques Tournier and uh, uh, Simone, Simone Simon. Simon. Yeah, Simon. Yeah, they were they were French. So think again in the context of World War II. Russia at the time was. Uh, trying to throw the Nazis um, out of their country um, because right. the Nazis had invaded Russia. Yes, and they had. France was under the occupation of Germany. And so we had four, four people from these uh, other countries uh, deeply involved in World War II. And I've always wondered how so many folks from Germany and Russia and, um, and France ended up in the film industry in the United States. But that's a discussion for another time, I think. Yeah. So anyways, it was uh, his brother George, George Sanders, who persuaded him to come to Hollywood. This is Tom Conway. Okay. So to prevent confusion on the part of the public, they tossed a coin to see who'd have to change his name. Would it be George Sanders uh, or would it be Tom Conway? Tom lost. So... Tom Conway go. became his stage and theater name. He began working at MGM. He eventually appeared as a contract player in 12 films there at MGM, including a bit part in a movie that you dearly love called Mrs. Miniver. Mrs. Miniver. That was one that I had to study for the um, my German cinema class. Mm -hmm. At Harvard. At Harvard, yeah. Um, uh, Yes, Mrs. Miniver, a very emotional film. And by the way, interesting enough, let's, let's draw some more comparisons. Cat People and Mrs. Miniver were filmed the same year. Oh, how about that? So Tom Conway was in both of those movies in the same year. Two films that are dramatically different from one another. Yeah, but he was involved with both of them, which is, you know, pretty heavy-duty bragging rights. Now, his brother, George Sanders, he started getting tired of doing B-films uh, over at RKO in the Falcon series. Yes. So he started uh, looking for better uh, roles at uh, different studios, and this gave Tom his first big break. So 
he was the Falcon's brother in 1942. Guess what? That's the same year we're talking about for Cat People and Mrs. Miniver. Tom Conway was pretty active in 1942. I guess he was. And so George, his brother, was conveniently eliminated by a Nazi sniper in the movie Mm -hmm. so that Tom could inherit the role. Oh. So Tom Conway played the role with even greater success than his brother George in the next 10 installments, including The Falcon's Adventure in 1946. Oh, wow. And like I say, he... uh, did all of these movies in 1942, and then the following year he did something called I Walked with a Zombie. And, uh, you know, then uh, he started uh, seeing a shrinkage of his major film roles. Um, His film in 1951, The Bride of the Gorilla, was maybe one of his last big film appearances. And so he moved into television, Gary. So this fella from Russia, who was George Sanders' brother, uh-huh. entered TV at a time when a lot of people who did movies didn't want anything to do with television. So true. And so Tom Conway appeared on Rawhide. That was one of my favorite uh, uh, TV shows growing up. Uh, Adventures in Paradise and Perry Mason. That was another show that... Uh, I liked maybe not as much as the westerns like right. Rawhide, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, maybe you even saw this. He was the um, ventriloquist Max Collodi in an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It was a chilling tale called The Glass Eye. Oh, I'll check that out. Hang on. I love uh, Alfred Hitchcock. All of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. and uh, then he was uh, a regular on the Betty Hutton show. He played the boyfriend, and this was in 1959. And if all of this doesn't sound too familiar with today's generation of filmgoers, here's one that might. He was the voice, one of the voices, in Disney's 101 Dalmatians in 1961. Well, who was he? I'm not sure. Uh, His final appearance was uh, an uncredited part in a movie in 1964 called What a Way to Go. And this movie almost, uh, you know, foretold what a way to go was how he really went. Uh, He had failing eyesight at the time. He had prolonged bouts with alcohol. And his second wife divorced him in 1963. His brother, George Sanders, broke off all contact with him over his drinking. So he was starting to be all alone in the world, failing eyesight, ill uh, from excessive alcohol intake. He underwent cataract surgery in the winter of 64 and 65. And then it was during that time that he was living in a $2 a day room, a flop house. California. Uh-huh. So people got wind of it, and so some gifts and contributions and offers of aid started pouring in for a little time. He was still standing tall and trim. His hair was white. He peered owl-like through his thick-lensed glasses at the newspaper cameras. And then his last years were marked with uh, lots of time in the hospital. And his sister-in-law was a very famous actress named Zaja Gabor. Oh, I know who that is. Yeah. So she visited him one day at the hospital. She gave him $200, and uh, she, she told him, tip the nurses a little bit so they'll be good to you. 
And the following day, the hospital called her to say that he had left with the $200. He had gone to his girlfriend's house, and he died in her bed. Oh, man. Sad ending for this guy who had a fantastic film career in Hollywood. That's Tom Conway, and he plays the villain doctor in Cat People. Oh, wow. Let's talk about another one of the uh, stars, uh, male stars, and then we'll talk about Simone uh, Simon last. Let's talk about a little bit about Kent Smith. He's the hero. Uh, he was one of Hollywood's more interesting curiosities. Uh, uh, he should have been one of the top 1940s, 50s film stars. He was handsome. He was personable. He was highly dedicated. He was a squi- uh, equipped with a rich stage background, and he had a lot of talent, but for some reason... All of that did not add up to stardom. He was always kind of a third lead or, you know, the third person in a a romantic triangle. Now, Kent was born in 1907, and uh, in early childhood, uh, he performed as an assistant to Blackstone the Magician. I know about Blackstone the Magician. Yes, yes. And he graduated from a boarding school, an exclusive one. It's Phillips Exeter Academy, still in existence up there in New Hampshire. And then... But um, he attended Harvard University. Oh, mm-hmm. he was on Broadway. Uh, that's where he started in 1932, and he had a, a steady. He had steady work, and for actors, you know, that's a great thing to have steady work. Um, but his film uh, career didn't begin until 1942. Well, guess what movie was filmed in 1942, Gary? The Cat People. The Cat People. And he was the husband of Simone Simon. So what do you think of that? And then he returned for The Curse of the Cat People. Yeah, that movie had a lot of uh, people who returned. Yeah. And um, he was also in Hitler's Children. That's one I've seen that uh, most people haven't heard of. That was in 1943. And in 1943, this land is mine. And he, then he joined the uh, U.S. Army Air Force and was involved with uh, making some government training films, and his career with the Air Force and the military ended in uh, 1944. He died at the age of 78. He did not have such a tragic ending as uh, Tom Conway. Yeah. Well, our final person that we'll be talking about is Simone Simon. She's, of course, the female lead of the Cat People, she was a small person, diminutive. She was fiery tempered. She was born in France. Uh, she spent much of her childhood, though, Gary, in Madagascar. Really? Yeah. Why was that? I'm not sure. Well, uh, her father managed a graphite mine, so I think. Oh, well, that explains yeah, it. I think that's probably the reason. Um, but she started as a dress designer and fashion model. Ooh, that fits the character in The Cat People, doesn't That's it? That's pretty much the character yeah. in The Cat People. And she was occasionally in some stage musicals. And then she was in a French film that was directed by Jean Renoir. And uh, she got discovered by Daryl F. Zanuck in 1936 at 20th Century Fox. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But her best work uh, was Cat People in 1942. And uh, I tell you what, um, it's interesting to note, I'd love to go back to history, uh, Gary, when we're talking about uh, films uh, from those days. Yeah. During the production of Cat People, she was under FBI surveillance. Oh, why was she under FBI uh, surveillance? Now, this is World War II, and she was under FBI surveillance 
because she had a relationship with a guy named Dusko Popoff. Okay. And it turns out he was an MI5 British spy. Oh. I think he was actually a double agent. Oh, no, not a double agent. Yeah, the Germans thought he was working for them, and the British thought he was working for them. And, folks, you'll have to check out your history to see who he was really working for. But in any event, his relationship with uh, Simone Simon brought her to the FBI's attention. Uh, after a couple more less successful films at Archeo, including Curse of the Cat People, uh, she returned to France uh, for good. Um, interestingly, also, um, this past week I watched a movie called Rhapsody in Blue. It was filmed in 1945, black and white. Yeah. And it was the um, biop of uh, George Gershwin. Yeah. It was a biopic movie about George Gershwin, the uh, famous composer who did American in Paris and Rhapsody in Blue. Yeah. And uh, some of the Gershwin scholars suggest that uh, his piece called Love Walked In was written with Simone Simon in mind. Oh. Because in 1991, in an interview, she, she talked about it, and she said, above anything else in the relationship, Gershwin and I shared a common interest in music. So he, she was one of Gershwin's lady friends. Oh, I, I, I don't believe George Gershwin never married, but she was. Oh no, he was married. Was he? Yeah, because we had um one of our mutual friends, uh, knew um, Gershwin's son. Okay, okay. So anyhow, she was one of his lady friends, and uh, so she's got a connection with a spy, uh, with a famous composer. And by the way, uh, talking about that spy, Popoff, Dusko Popoff, um, there was a fellow working in uh, the British uh, intelligence services who knew all about uh, Dusko Popoff, and he started uh, dabbling in writing fiction. And he wrote some stories about a British secret agent, and he... Um, he actually um, molded that British secret agent uh, after a lot of Dusko Popoff's characteristics. And the man I'm talking about is Ian Fleming, and his fictional character was who, Gary? James Bond. James Bond, yeah. What a thread of connections weaving out from Cat People of 1942. Oh, I know, right? Yeah. One last one, one last one that I have to talk about is Dynamite. Dynamite is also known for his uh, appearance in Cat People as well as The Leopard Man in 1943. Do you know uh, what part Dynamite played? Dynamite was the leopard at the zoo. Yeah, well, he's not a leopard. He's a black panther. Oh, or was I'm a sorry, black panther. panther. Yeah, and so he was used in both of those movies. He was a black panther, not a leopard, even though he appeared in The Leopard Man. And... Um, Guess what? He was trained for cat people and the leopard man by a man by the name of Mel Kuntz, an animal trainer by the name of Mel Kuntz. Do you know who else Mel Kuntz trained? I don't know who. Jackie, the MGM lion. Oh, the one that roars in the uh, MGM logo. Yeah. So Dynamite has a connection to Jackie, the MGM lion. 
and Dynamite is part of the Cat People movie. Folks, I'm telling you what. Go out and find a copy of the Cat People and watch it. I guarantee you'll be highly entertained. Uh, we talked about the Luton bus uh, scare, and like Gary said, there's a lot of off-screen noises uh, that uh, often uh, turned out to be a startled, harmless cat, but they would scare the audience uh, nevertheless. And I think it's a movie well worth watching. Oh, I agree 100%. Now, Gary, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to share a secret. Next week, we are going to have the incredible film historian who did the DVD commentary for both Cat People and The Curse of the Cat People. Pretty exciting. And I'm sure he'll be able to give us a little bit more insight into the movie. Yes, plus a lot of other insights because I'm telling you what, folks, do not miss our episode next week because it's going to be something that will blow your minds. Absolutely. But until then... I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And this was a very interesting story. Incredible. Super incredible. Delightfully incredible. 